millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 2 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 6, Episode 1 for Part 1 of this five-part case. The third instalment will be available in four days. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. the heart of Gloucester, one three-storey terraced home has become the focal point of the city's biggest ever criminal investigation. The start of what was to become a trail of death started with the discovery on the 26th of February this year of the body of a young woman. She'd been buried under the patio at 25 Cromwell Street, the home of builder Frederick West. Police in Gloucester searching 25 Cromwell Street last night discovered yet a further set of human remains. I've been told that there might be 12 people. Do you know what I mean? Where does it end? He's always the kind of guy who would say, come on in, you know, I'll sit up a cup of tea, no? Was there anything unusual about the house? Nothing unusual, just a lot of kids. I was talking to my wife on the phone, she says, oh, they find another one in the bathroom. And I, oh, and it's starting to make me feel sick. It really is, I'm still getting right upset about it. I laid most of the concrete, a lot of the concrete, on Christmas Eve of 77. Um, whether I was actually covering some of that, I'll never know. Each 
each passing day, the increasing crowd of bystanders observed scene of crime officers carrying box upon box of evidence out of the garden of 25 Cromwell Street, their boots heavy with mud, marking the tarmac outside. Television crews from all over the globe were asking residents for their thoughts on the West family and everything that happened on the street over the years. One local even took it upon himself to design and print t-shirts that he was hoping to sell. Embossed on the front were the words Nightmare on Cromwell Street, in a font and logo similar to the one used to promote the horror film Nightmare on Elm Street. The word nightmare was undoubtedly apt for what had happened. The police used luminol throughout the address. They discovered that large amounts of blood had been spilt in the bathtubs on each level of the house. To the naked eye, the bathrooms appeared like any other room in an ordinary home, until a thorough examination was completed. Furthermore, there was also a large amount of thick masking tape recovered on and near the remains. Some of the strips had been wrapped around the heads of the victims into a shape that resembled a mask, almost as if they were partially mummified. The body count was growing, and there was uncertainty as to the exact number of victims. It was clear from the size and shape of the bones the remains were female. Officers reviewed the nationwide files of missing people to understand who on that list might be buried under the patio, beneath the floor of a bathroom, and in the cellar entombed in concrete. A team of 20 cool handlers staffed the incident room as calls from across the country flooded the phone lines, bereft families desperate to find out if it was their missing loved one that had been found at Cromwell Street. Hundreds of calls were being received a day. Each one had to be logged and investigated, as anxious relatives recounted stories of how their lives were turned upside down. Every piece of evidence gathered was added to Holmes, the Home Office major inquiry system, so data could be easily interrogated. Detective Chief Inspector Colin Handy from the Gloucestershire Constabulary spoke outside the magistrate's court where Fred West had again made a brief appearance. It would be one of many. West's quilted anorak covered a blue shirt and trousers. The defendant said little and much like his other court appearances, West looked sickly, his face pale. DCI Handy told a crowd of reporters, I think this is going to end up being one of the biggest cases, not just in Gloucestershire but in England. Last week, when we had found only one body in the garden, a London newspaper was saying there could be up to 12 bodies hidden in the house. It may well be that. They are more right than we are. We simply have to wait and see what else there is to discover. We are literally taking this day to day, he added. 
25 Cromwell Street was no longer the single area of focus. The police started to search multiple sites. Fred and Rose's former home on Midland Road in Gloucester, a caravan site in Bishop's Cleave in Cheltenham where Fred had lived with his first wife, and some fields around Kempley near to where Fred was raised in the village of Much Markle. Large blue and white forensic tents had been inflated, covering the spots where police were digging. It was suspected that both Fred West's first wife Rena and her first child Charmaine might very well be buried in these locations. When reporters and photographers were made aware, they rushed to the fields of Kempley. They spotted that several flags were placed in the ground. Considering this was such a vast area of land, it implied that the police had received information about the burial sites of further victims. Fred West had seemed only too happy to talk with the authorities. Was this information from him? Many lodgers passed through the doors of 25 Cromwell Street, most of them young adults who were looking for a place to stay after either being kicked out or seeking an escape from a difficult home life. A large number of missing people were mentioned in connection with the investigation, although one name that kept appearing in the papers was Alison Chambers. Alison had gone missing in August 1978 after leaving the children's home where she was staying. The 16-year-old never came home. By March 8th, two weeks into the investigation, nine bodies were found at 25 Cromwell Street. Three bodies in the garden, five bodies in the cellar and remains were discovered concealed under the floor in a bathroom. Excavation work continued at Cromwell Street. An old well 50 feet deep was found covered over close to the back door inside the extension built by Fred West. Police divers would need to be lowered in to examine the area and learn if any evidence was concealed. Because so much earth was displaced from the property, there were concerns that the building was no longer stable and a section might collapse. A team of builders had to strengthen the foundations with 14 tonnes of concrete. This was not the constabulary's only worry. The investigation was fast becoming the most significant multiple murder inquiry that the small rural police force had ever handled. It was stretching not only their resources, but also their budget. Gloucestershire Constabulary approached the government for emergency funding, something that was not unusual for a sizeable investigation such as this. The application for a special grant was available in unforeseen or exceptional circumstances, where it was likely to impact the effectiveness of the operation. The cost had reportedly ballooned to £1 million. 
Moreover, the force were not even a month into the investigation. It had involved dig teams across multiple sites, hiring ground-penetrating radar equipment, security checks around the clock, not to mention the resources needed to identify the victims through forensics and pathology, and the requirement to repair the property once they had finished, restoring it to its original state. None of this came cheap. The constabulary had around 1,200 employees, so they were required to work on a phased rota in order to keep up with the ever-mounting needs of the inquiry. The claim to help with the cost, a total grant of £650,000, was submitted to the Home Office that September. By that time, the amount requested covered half of the cost of the investigation. A decision would be reached that December. It was decided that the expenditure was not seen as extraordinary. As time passed, more members of Rose West's family were interviewed and they did not hold back when they discussed what she had been doing in the house. Graham Letts, Rose's brother, told a reporter for the Daily Mirror newspaper that before Rose and her husband had been arrested, he had heard rumours about the property on Cromwell Street being used as a brothel. He did not believe what he was told, but Graham Letts thought it best to ask his sister what was going on. To his surprise, Rose admitted everything that her brother had heard was true. She even revealed the nickname she used when conducting business. Graham Letts said, What shocked me most was how casual she was about the whole thing. She seemed to take pride in how slick the whole operation was. She was calling herself Mandy Mouse and had a separate front doorbell for her clients. I was stunned, but Rose said we were overreacting. Stranger still, while on a night out in a local pub during the late 70s, Rose was chatting to some other partygoers and propositioned them, asking if they were interested in sleeping with one of her daughters who was out with her mother at the time. One of the men who was later interviewed went back to Cromwell Street and ended up in a brief relationship with one of Rose's children, who was by then a young adult. He visited the address frequently. Despite the presence of children, pornographic material was often left out in plain sight, and multiple witnesses corroborated the claims the property was being used as a brothel. After her husband's arrest, the subject of Rose West's children was coming up frequently in the press, so her solicitor submitted a complaint to the Attorney General regarding the unrelenting reporting that followed the case and the family. At the time, Rose West was released on bail and had not been charged with any offences. There was concern from her solicitor that newspaper reports about the family could prejudice the legal proceedings. 
One headline from the Daily Mirror read, Dad on Patio Bodies Charges. This included a large accompanying picture of Fred West. 25 Cromwell Street was described as the House of Horrors, and the son called Fred West the House of Horrors Handyman. A warning was issued to the media to be mindful of what they were publishing, and the county council had no other choice than to obtain an injunction against naming five of the West children, who were then still adolescents. Although there was certainly no shortage of dark days during the investigation, which would run for an extended period of time, there were the smallest of silver linings. Detectives had been working with the Missing Persons Bureau in London, reviewing countless files of missing people. What we're really here to do is is to offer support and advice for those left behind when someone goes missing. Um, We run a 24-hour national helpline, so we're always there at the end of the phone for people to talk about their fears and worries about their missing relative. We try, if possible, to reunite families or or at least put them back in contact, passing on letters, um, doing publicity. Our commitment is therefore to the estimated quarter of a million people who go missing each year and we're here all the time to answer those phone calls. Through the process of elimination, in order to make a positive identification against the remains found, five young women were reunited with their families despite them being missing for a significant period of time. Detective Chief Inspector Terry Moore of the Gloucestershire Constabulary, who was instrumental during the Cromwell Street investigations, told journalist Barbara McMahon, It has been one of the happiest and most positive aspects of the inquiry. Thanks to our efforts to establish the identities of the victims at Cromwell Street, we have made five families a great deal happier. Detective Chief Inspector Handy confirmed that 81 other families had been told that the relative they believe was dead was safe and well. DCI Handy stated that good could still come from such a tragedy, despite what had happened. While Fred West was in custody, occasionally being ferried to his court appointments, his wife Rose protested her innocence. Almost three weeks had passed since the couple were arrested on the afternoon of February 25, 1994. Although Rose had been arrested for a second time that same day, she had yet to be charged. A solicitor Leo Goatley gave a statement to the press. He claimed that his client was shocked by what had happened and the whole sequence of events was deeply upsetting for everyone involved. She denies any involvement in any events that led to her husband's arrest, Rose West's solicitor said. She was devastated, quite clearly distressed, um and shocked. She denies she knew anything about the bodies, is that correct? Yes, she does. 
What does she say about knowledge of the killings at all? She totally denies that. Yes, she does. At that point, the police felt there was not enough evidence to proceed with charges against Rose, at least in respect of the first three bodies discovered under the patio, two of whom had been identified as the couple's daughter Heather and lodger Shirley Ann Robinson, who was heavily pregnant when she died. The news of Rose West's denial was quickly followed by the announcement that one of the bodies discovered in the cellar was that of 15-year-old Carol Ann Cooper. She went missing in November 1973, almost 21 years earlier. Carol's parents had separated when she was four, and her mother had subsequently died four years later. Social services took on the responsibility of her care. She was last seen waiting for a bus in the suburb of Warnden in Worcestershire. This area is around 30 miles north of Gloucester. Carol was visiting her grandmother. Carol's family were informed about the discovery in Cromwell Street, although they did not wish to make a statement. Fred West was soon charged with Carol Ann Cooper's murder. The constabulary were using every tool at its disposal, but due to the state of the remains, forensic experts who specialised in the field of facial reconstructions were also brought in to help. Much work had been done with the Missing Persons Bureau, Still, it was understood an additional approach could go some way in identifying the bodies of the victims. More often than not, missing people were not registered with the Bureau. There were concerned relatives looking for their missing loved ones, but some went unnoticed. It was all too common that no one was looking, because nobody cared. Inquests into the deaths of the nine victims found buried at 25 Cromwell Street were scheduled for April 14th at Shire Hall in Gloucester. By the end of March, the police were confident they had discovered the identity of most of the victims, predominantly through the use of dental records. The families of the victims were being informed before an announcement was made to the media. In the search for more bodies, members of the dig team were slowly relocating to three other areas linked to the investigation. Detective Superintendent John Bennett asked the film crews that followed the inquiry's every move to be mindful that an active investigation was underway. The officer said he was not afraid to have any media equipment forcibly removed. The high, bleak field a mile from the village of Much Markle, where Frederick West was born, was to change overnight. Filling one corner of an isolated Gloucestershire field, the men and machinery to begin phase two of this complex search. Some of the headline paints the village of being like village of horror, um, killing fields of Much Markle, and most of the people around here think the village is a pleasant Herefordshire cider village 
and their tourism is of um, old houses and cider apples and they don't want it to be known of anything else. When a further press announcement came, four of the victims were named. They were either teenagers or young adults when they died. Lucy Partington's name had been mentioned earlier in the investigation, but it could now be confirmed that one of the bodies found in the cellar belonged to the 21-year-old. Another confirmed victim was factory worker Juanita Mott. The 18-year-old was living in the town of Newant near Gloucester when she vanished on April 11, 1975. She planned to travel to Gloucester where she was raised. Juanita's parents had engaged with the media to highlight her disappearance, although there was no record it was ever registered with the police. Juanita's sister was a regular at Cromwell Street, frequently visiting friends at the address after her sister's disappearance. She had no idea that Juanita's remains were concealed in the cellar. 19-year-old Linda Carol Goff, who worked altering clothes in a co-op on Barton Street, was last seen alive by her mother in April 1973. Linda said she wanted to see what life had to offer. The seamstress lived in Gloucester. Her parents provided a statement in which they remarked they had lived in the hope their daughter would one day come home. Now we know she will not, they said. Linda's body was concealed under the floor in one of the bathrooms. Gloucester was the same place where Alison Chambers went missing. Hers was the third body found buried under the patio. The 17-year-old's name had already been mentioned by the media throughout the investigation. Alison's father served in the army when his daughter was born in West Germany during September 1962. Her parents separated and she spent time with her mother in Swansea. Described as headstrong by her mother Joan, Alison then moved out. Although Joan received correspondence from her daughter, she did not have a forwarding address. Joan believed Alison was in Gloucester working for a firm of solicitors. Alison's mother said, I just can't put into words how I feel. On April 8th, just over a week later, the identities of the final two victims whose remains had been found under the cellar at the West's home were announced. Shirley Hubbard was 15 years old when she went missing. Born Shirley Lloyd, the shop employee from Droitwich was fostered at a young age. She had a history of running away. Shirley was heading home following a work experience course at a Debenhams department store in November 1974, before she vanished. Like Shirley Hubbard, Therese Siegenthaler disappeared in April of that same year. 
the Swiss-born sociology student attended Woolwich College of Further Education. She found occasional work as a nanny. Therese left her accommodation in Lewisham, southeast London with a backpack and planned to hitchhike through England and Wales, heading to Ireland. She was last seen on April 15th. Well, we're concluding the searches at Cromwell Street, but there's still a lot of work to do in the kitchen area there. Uh, we believe that that will go on for at least another week. Out at Kempley, the excavations are quite vast. It, within the search area, some 150 feet long, by six foot wide, by four foot deep, over 150 tonnes worth of earth uh, having been moved. And we expect that to be a protracted um, dig. No more remains would be unearthed at 25 Cromwell Street. But during a search of letterbox field on the doorstep of the village of Kempley, officers found the body of a female. The site was around 17 miles from Gloucester and only a short distance from where Fred West spent his childhood. The discovery in a cornfield would bring the victim count to ten. Now, there are suggestions that this body could be that of Fred West's wife. How long before you're able to make any sort of positive identification, do you think, in this case? Well, that could be some time yet, because, of course, there are all sorts of things to be done. And as you know from the work we've done at Cromwell Street, mm. that those actually identifying the remains took a long, long time. And, in fact, none of them have yet been formally identified. That will take place this week on Thursday when the Gloucester District Coroner, David Gibbons, will actually be uh, opening the inquest into, into those that nine sets of remains. So it could be some time yet before we have anything positive uh, on the latest set. It was theorised the remains could well be West's first wife, Rena Costello. D.S. Bennett leading the inquiry told the media that further searches would continue. It may be necessary to look at at least one other area in the Kempley site locality, but not in the field we are in at the moment, he said. Detectives focused on Fingerpost Field, also on the Gloucestershire-Herefordshire border. Police said they had good reason to search the area, but would not say why. Now in its seventh week, it seemed the investigation showed no signs of letting up, and it would not be long before the body found in Letterbox Field was identified. The prevailing theory was correct. Rena Costello had not been seen since late 1971, though was not reported missing. Fred West was charged with his first wife's murder on the same day the inquest began into the deaths of the nine women whose remains were discovered at Cromwell Street. With confirmation that Rena Costello's body had now been found, this raised the likely possibility that Charmaine, her daughter, was dead too. Under police guard, Coroner David Gibbons oversaw the inquest for the nine victims. The causes of their deaths, which would usually be confirmed at the proceedings, were not revealed. 
In this instance, formalities were being undertaken to ensure the identification process was correctly followed. How exactly each teenager or young woman met their end would be confirmed at the trial. The coroner told those people present at the inquest that identification had proved difficult due to the way in which the remains were concealed. Medical records, dental records and a technique of superimposing images on top of the remains were used to aid in the process. To try and quell some of the speculation surrounding the identities of the women found, Coroner David Gibbons went on to say, A great deal of anxiety was occurring not just to the relatives of the people discovered, but also to all of those around the country who had missing daughters. It was with my full agreement that the police, when the identities of the victims had been established, should release those details to the press. It was confirmed the nine remains found at Cromwell Street belonged to Heather West, Alison Chambers, Shirley Ann Robinson, Therese Siegenthaler, Shirley Hubbard, Lucy Partington, Juanita Mott, Linda Goff, and Carol Ann Cooper. Rose West had been vehemently protesting her innocence. Still, on April 21st, 1994, almost two months after the police arrived at Cromwell Street to investigate the murder of her daughter, Heather, Rose was again arrested, but this time she was charged. She was accused of assault occasioning actual bodily harm on an unidentified eight-year-old boy between January 1972 and December 1974. Along with a man called William Smith, she was jointly charged with raping an unidentified 11-year-old female over the course of two years between July 1974 and July 1976. The prosecutor told the court this was the first of many charges the defendant was to face. Unsurprisingly, given the age of the alleged victims, reporting restrictions were put in place and their names could not be published. Rose West said few words in the short hearing, never turning back to face the public gallery. She was to be held on remand until the next set of legal proceedings, and no objections were made. A representative for the Crown told the court that they wanted Rose West to remain in custody to avoid anyone influencing what she might say. She was told it was for her own protection. Details on who exactly William Smith was and how he was connected to Rose West was scant and Smith's address was not provided in court. He was granted bail. Three days later, a second man, Whiteley George Purcell, would appear before Gloucestershire Magistrates Court. Between 1976 and 1980, he was accused of raping one of the children Rose West had allegedly attacked. Both of the men charged with West were then in their 60s. 
Senior Investigating Officer D.S. Bennett told the media that this was, quote, unrelated to any other ongoing inquiry. The same day Rose West appeared in court, a noticeable police presence was seen at her former home on Midland Road. She had shared the address with her husband Fred before they moved to Cromwell Street. A police guard was stationed outside the property. It now seemed to be an area of intense scrutiny since the body of Fred West's first wife, Rena Costello, was found in Letterbox Field. Rumours reported in the press suggested that Charmaine, one of Rena's daughters, could well be buried there, as she had not been heard from since she was a child. An unnamed detective told a reporter for the Standard newspaper, Nothing about this case will surprise us now. The scale of the tasks before us is astonishing. As most of the victims had been identified, journalists were trying to track down all the people in Fred West's life who had disappeared in mysterious circumstances. The name Anne McFall was mentioned. Reporters noted that much like Shirley Ann Robinson, she too was heavily pregnant when she was last seen. Then Anne was in her early 20s. She was romantically involved with Fred West before he met his second wife, Rose. Was she another victim? Two months and one day after police first descended on Cromwell Street, Rose West would face her first murder charge. With her spouse, she was jointly accused of the murder of Linda Goff. The seamstress was 19 years old when she vanished 21 years earlier. Her remains were found buried in Cromwell Street, and Rose's husband had already been charged with her murder. Further accusations of rape and assault were included on Rose West's charge sheet, against the same victims mentioned on the previous indictment. An 11-year-old girl and an 8-year-old boy. The crimes were said to have been committed at Cromwell Street more than 20 years earlier. Rose West had been questioned and brought before the court on Monday, April 25th. At only a few minutes, the hearing was brief and Rose was told she would remain in custody given the severity of the charges. Leaving everyone in the courtroom unsettled, she raised a smile as she left. After police bricked up the doors and windows of 25 Cromwell Street, a solicitor acting on behalf of the West family announced that despite the decor being damaged, considerable structural faults, and the property's notoriety, the home was to be put up for sale. 
No one knew how much money would be raised as the excavation process had been thorough. Funds were needed by the family to cover the increasing costs they faced. Now both Fred and Rose were being prosecuted. A local estate agent was interviewed by a correspondent for the Guardian newspaper. They said it would, quote, only sell to someone very ghoulish, or someone who thinks there's money to be made out of it. Julian Farr, who worked in Gloucester, said, Personally, I think it should be demolished and replaced with a garden of remembrance. At the end of April 1994, the number of murder charges laid against Rose West increased to three after she was jointly charged with the murder of 15-year-old Carol Ann Cooper from Worcester and Exeter University student Lucy Partington, who was 21 when she was last seen. Their bodies were found concealed in the cellar at 25 Cromwell Street. Not even a week later, a fourth murder charge was included when it was alleged Rose murdered 21-year-old Swiss student Therese Siegenthaler. A string of discoveries and court appearances would follow. Just days after Rose West appeared in the dock on her fourth murder charge, news broke of a discovery at 25 Midland Road. A dig team ripped up the kitchen floor. Six inches below the surface in an area of the West's former home which had previously operated as a coal bunker that Fred West had filled up with concrete, a body was concealed. It was clear the remains belonged to a young child. Believed to be female between the ages of seven and twelve, around four feet five inches tall, it was the eleventh body found during the investigation. There was no mistaking the likelihood it was Charmaine West, Fred's stepdaughter from his previous marriage. The dig team left a bouquet of flowers at the front door as a mark of respect. That same week, Fred West was in court charged with the murder of Charmaine's mother, Rena Costello. And a week after Charmaine's remains were found, Fred West was charged with the murder of his stepdaughter. The charge sheet was then amended to include Rose West for the murder of Shirley Hubbard, who was 15 when she went missing. Progressively, throughout May 1994, Rose was charged with the murders of every further victim whose body was found buried at Cromwell Street. Juanita Mott, who vanished in 1975 when she was 18. Shirley Ann Robinson, who was heavily pregnant when she disappeared in May 1978. 17-year-old Alison Chambers was not seen after August of the following year. Then Rose's daughter Heather West, the eldest of her children and a teenager at the time of her suspected murder in June 1987.
Fred West had been charged with 11 counts of murder. But on Tuesday, June 7, 1994, the twelfth and last known victim was found. That evening, near Fred West's former childhood home, the remains of Anne McFall, Fred's former girlfriend, were discovered in Fingerpost Field located around the village of Kempley in Gloucestershire. The Scottish national was in her early twenties when she was last seen. Anne was heavily pregnant. Her body was buried a short distance from the body of Fred's first wife, Rena Costello, which had been unearthed in Letterbox Field. Professor Bernard Knight, who was continuously involved with the investigation, examined the remains. Anne McFall was the final victim to be found before the search concluded. To mount a prosecution so vast, the authorities had a lot of work in front of them. The case was not expected to go to trial until the following year. There had been an ocean of press coverage, hundreds of articles across myriad publications reporting on the events. Expectedly, complaints were raised by the legal teams representing both Fred and Rose West. The defendants protested they would never get a fair trial. Interest in the case was at fever pitch. Publishers and literary agents quickly negotiated several high-profile book deals. Television rights thrashed out at an alarming pace and guided tours of the burial sites were always sold out. Even autograph hunters desperate to track down signatures from the couple were offering to pay hundreds of pounds for the privilege. The public, and most certainly the tabloids, could not get enough of the House of Horrors and everything that surrounded it. Scottish comedian Billy Connolly mentioned the couple in his act. However, copies of one of his live performances had to be withdrawn from sale and re-edited following legal action. It was claimed that his comments in a segment that lasted several minutes would prejudice a trial. Perhaps the unrelenting interest in the case stemmed from the fact that from outward appearances, Fred West and his wife Rose appeared to live such a normal life. The possibility that they could have been anyone's neighbours was truly horrifying and captivating in equal measure. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to scentair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at scentair.com. Fred West's younger brother John had told a reporter at the start of March 1994, everything seemed so normal. However, it appeared he too had his fair share of dark secrets. Much like his brother, John was brought before Gloucester Magistrates Court. He was accused of raping two children between January 1975 and January 1980. One victim was between 7 and 8 when she was attacked, and the other 11 to 16. John Charles Edward West, who was 51 at the time, was released on bail and would need to report to the local police station on a weekly basis. The magistrate agreed that for the defendant's protection, his address could be withheld from publication. On June 30th, 1994, Fred West and his wife would see each other again for the first time in several months. On a joint charge of nine murders, 
they stood before a packed courtroom escorted by several police officers. Fred West faced two separate murder charges, accused of killing his first wife, Rena, and Rena's daughter, Charmaine. Wearing spectacles and a cardigan, Rose West was separately charged with two counts of rape and causing actual bodily harm against a child. She appeared exhausted. The West's son, Stephen, who was in his early twenties, watched from the public gallery as his parents were reunited, albeit for the briefest of moments in the short remand hearing. Fred West placed a hand on the small of his wife's back and quietly said hello. He put his hands into his pockets, then glanced at the public gallery, something his wife was unable to do. Unsurprisingly, the pair were told that they would continue to be held in custody as the case made its way through the legal system. Court documents were thousands of pages long and more was to come. The body of Anne McFall was found in a field, although no one had yet been charged with her murder. Fred West went to touch his wife one final time, but his hand was pushed away by a police officer as they were led away from the court. Fred appeared before the magistrates a few days later, but this time he was not with Rose. He was charged with the murder of Anne McFall. The prosecution believed she was killed in 1967. This was the 12th murder charge Fred West faced. Solicitors acting for the Wests today asked for proceedings to be delayed because of the sheer volume of paperwork created by this investigation. There's uh, quite considerable papers have been served thus far, um, something in the order of 25 Lever Arch files of evidence. It could be months now before this case is committed to Crown Court for trial. As the months passed and further remand hearings would follow, the husband and wife forever bound in the annals of British criminal history saw each other again sporadically. In their second appearance together, Rose West continued to avert her eyes from the public gallery. She stared intently at the floor as her head was bowed. Due to the sheer volume of spectators, the public benches were packed shoulder to shoulder. It was difficult to manoeuvre as the sound of shuffling feet filled the quiet courtroom. This time Rose did not look towards her husband, who was sitting only a few feet away, and Fred turned his back on Rose when she entered the courtroom during a third hearing. She peered at her husband occasionally, although he never matched her gaze. Two weeks before Christmas, as the Crown marched onwards towards a trial, supported by what was labelled one of the largest police operations in Britain, it was announced that committal proceedings were finally scheduled to occur in February 1995. 
the committal procedure would be abolished in England during 2013. Still, during the tail end of 1994, the sufficiency of evidence would need to be determined before a case was passed to the Crown Court. A representative for Fred West suggested this could be done as a paper-based exercise. However, counsel for Rose West asked that evidence be presented in person. Earlier that year, as officers began the interview process with Fred West, they told him what they'd found. Fred demanded that detectives put everything back the way it was once they had finished. I do not want my garden ruined, he said. A team of four detectives under the command of D.S. Bennett and the advice of a psychologist carefully but thoroughly questioned him. Fred West described how he never planned his daughter's murder. He just lost control when Heather provoked him. She had treated him with contempt. Heather wanted to leave home and move away from Gloucester, but Fred was not happy. He claimed that he ordered Rose to go out and get some money so Heather could do some shopping to cheer herself up. Fred West described what happened to detectives, a recording of which would later be played to a jury in court. So Heather's standing by the washing machine in the hallway and she's standing there with her hands on her hips, the big lady business. And I said to her about getting a flat up the road because we'd done that for the other two. She stood there and she had a smile and a sort of smirk on her face. I lunged at her and grabbed her round the throat and I held her for a minute. How long I held her, I don't know. And the next minute, she's gone blue. I looked at her, I was shaking from head to foot. What the heck had gone wrong? I put her on the floor, blew air into her mouth and pumped her chest, and she just went bluer. I didn't know what to do. There was no mistaking that Fred West did not strangle his daughter by accident. It was something that required considerable effort and would not be over in a matter of seconds. It would take minutes. Unfazed by what he was describing, Fred West told DC Hazel Savage he used an ice saw to cut up Heather's body and initially hid the remains in a playhouse in the back garden. He then also described killing his first wife, Rena. But West provided two differing accounts. In the first version, Rena had gone to visit Fred about Charmaine. Fred claimed to officers that his stepdaughter was alive, even though the evidence suggested that she was killed first. He said he convinced his first wife they should go out and have a talk over a few drinks. Fred slowly plied Rena with more and more alcohol, and by the end of the night she was highly inebriated. West then walked to his car and drove Rena out to a field around Kempley. 
Fred said he strangled Rena and then buried her body in letterbox field. Fred claimed Charmaine was asleep in the car. In a second version of the events, they did not go out for drinks. Instead, Fred declared that following an argument, he became angry and strangled her. When asked about the death of Charmaine, which detectives believed occurred earlier in the year, during one interview, Fred instead claimed that he killed his stepdaughter after killing his first wife. He would not, however, dispose of Charmaine's remains in the same way. Fred said he could not bear the idea of cutting up a child's body. According to Fred, Charmaine was, quote, pure. Throughout the period of his incarceration, Fred West spoke with detectives numerous times. The interviews were recorded. There were approximately 145 tapes worth of evidence, lasting in the region of 108 hours. Frustratingly for detectives, West's account of what happened changed considerably throughout. When asked to repeat the events, no two accounts were the same. That was until he settled on a version of the events which saw his wife free from blame. Fred West made it clear to officers that Rose was not involved. She was in the dark. West had no problems describing what he did to the other victims and where they were buried. He said that he killed most of them as they wanted a relationship with him. He was worried his wife would find out. All these girls I have had affairs with, and that's why they ended up this way, because they threatened to tell Rose. All these girls did exactly the same thing. It was made clear. I was married to Rose, and it was nothing serious. It was just a thank you, ma'am, finished. Every one of them did the same thing. I love you. I'm pregnant. I want you to come and live with me. And that was the problem. As conversations progressed, Fred West was accompanied back to Cromwell Street and the other burial sites. Without much prompting, he pointed out where the victims were buried. This was how the police knew where to look. It was yet to be proven, but Fred West confessed to killing a dozen children and young women, making him one of the most prolific serial killers that the country has ever seen. The Crown prepared its case, and committal proceedings would soon be underway. Fred West was charged with a total of 12 counts of murder. The bodies of nine victims had been concealed in the building or the garden of 25 Cromwell Street. Another body was under the kitchen of a property where Fred and Rose lived on Midland Road in Gloucester, and two more were buried in separate fields close to a village where Fred West grew up. West was claiming he was in a sexual relationship with most of the victims, and in an effort to avoid his wife finding out, he killed them. He insisted that he acted on his own. However, a great deal of what Fred West told the police 
did not add up. The more he spoke, the more things did not make sense. Just before midday on January 1st, 1995, Fred West was served his lunch. Prisoner WN3617 was being held in Winston Green, a Category B prison in Birmingham. West spent New Year's Eve calmly watching television and played a game of pool. He had breakfast the next morning without incident. His cell was frequently searched, although during lunch security could be slack. As it was New Year's Day, there would have been fewer members of staff on duty. Perhaps this was something Fred West realised. When he noticed that he was not being watched by the guards, West quietly ripped apart his bedsheets and tied them together to create a homemade noose. He was determined to take one more life. Not even an hour later when a guard went to open the cell door, telling West to wash up, it was jammed shut. Guards forced their way in and found Fred West hanging from an air vent in his cell. A chair he stood on was kicked some distance away. It was just over ten months since his arrest. At 12.55pm, prison guards tried unsuccessfully to revive him. He was pronounced dead at 1.22pm. News of Fred West's death filtered through the prison, and soon after, cheers and shouts from his fellow prisoners echoed through HMP Winston Green, a place where there had been 10 prisoners who had taken their lives in the last 12 months. West had not been considered a suicide risk and was interviewed several times to assess his mental health. He was, however, classified as a vulnerable prisoner following a psychiatric evaluation. It was requested that an independent witness or appropriate adult accompany him during his interviews. I think he should have been made to suffer. All the grief he's caused. He should have been made to stand up in court and face the, the people he's hurt. I feel sorry for the family, all the families which were involved. And uh, I just hope he rots in hell. Um, it's probably going to save a lot of money as well in the legal system, isn't it? I think for him to kill himself is going to have an effect on some people, but I shouldn't think many. I should think a lot of people would be saying hooray. As reports of Fred West's death reached the relatives of his victims... Joan Owen, mother to Alison Chambers, said, This is the best news I've heard for a long time. After all the evil things he did, this must be the only good thing he did. According to a reporter for the independent newspaper who spoke with Rose West's solicitor, she was taking solace in the company of a nun who spoke with the accused while she was on remand. Leo Goatley told his client to dwell on the positives. 
41-year-old Rosemary West is currently being held at Puckle Church Remand Centre near Bristol. But her solicitor, Leo Goatley, says the Crown could begin a review of her case now that her husband is dead. With the press saturation on this story today, uh, it may be an opportunity for the Crown to review the case and uh, they may feel that... uh, All in all, it might not be justifiable to take any further. The door to Rose West's cell remained open as she was kept under 24-hour surveillance. It was clear the authorities did not want to see a repeat of what had happened to her husband. Stephen West told a correspondent for The Guardian, that he had been to visit his father while Fred West was on remand. West's son spoke about how he thought his father wanted to control the children and women he murdered. Stephen West believed that the bodies his father dismembered were first taken to farmland, to be cut up and then returned to be concealed in the foundations of 25 Cromwell Street. During the first few months of his incarceration, Fred West told Stephen that he thought he would be out of prison in 12 years and could return to his family home. But as Christmas approached, West's mental state was deteriorating. Describing one meeting between father and son, Stephen West said, Every time I went to see him, he used to cry for the first 20 minutes. Dad told me that if he didn't do away with himself, someone else in there was going to do it. He said the other prisoners shouted and swore at him and called him names. Rose West claimed that she was not involved in any of the murders. She said that her husband had committed the crimes on his own. She asserted that she was also a victim. However, the Crown Prosecution Service felt differently. Despite the death of her husband, the case against Rosemary Pauline West would still go ahead. As far as we are concerned, the only difference is that there is one less person in the dock, a police spokesperson reportedly said. Rose West had, by that point, been charged with nine counts of murder. But on Friday, January 13th, 1995, a tenth charge was added. She was accused of the murder of Charmaine West. Charmaine was raised by Fred and his first wife, Rena. However, she was not Fred's biological daughter. The eight-year-old's remains were found under the concrete floor of the kitchen at 25 Midland Road in Gloucester. During the magistrate hearing concerning the new murder charge, Rose West firmly told the court, I am innocent. Her solicitor demanded that the charges against his client be dropped, as she would be unable to receive a fair trial due to the press coverage on the case, which he deemed to be prejudicial. Mm -hmm. 
committal proceedings began during the first week of February 1995 at a magistrate court in the South Gloucestershire village of Dursley. Magistrate Judge Peter Badge would decide the sufficiency of evidence. He travelled from London and had two decades of experience. The committal proceedings were not carried out to pass judgment on guilt or innocence, but rather to confirm if there was enough evidence to go to trial. Magistrate Judge Peter Badge warned the press about what they could and could not report. A breach of these conditions could end in a fine or even imprisonment. Only the basic facts of the case could be relayed until the start of the trial, if it was ruled there was to be one. Rose West was transported via the courtroom's back entrance, away from the enormous crowd which had been waiting with bated breath to catch a glimpse of the alleged serial killer. Camera crews and hundreds of photographers formed part of a media invasion that swarmed the quiet village. The domestic press were limited by what they could write. However, the same was not true for the foreign media, who weren't beholden to the same laws. Hotels, restaurants and bed and breakfasts in Dursley were fully booked for the week-long proceedings. Each day as the van carrying the defendant passed the crowds of people, either eggs were thrown at the vehicle or abuse was hurled at Rose West. Burn her, burn her, one person shouted. What exactly was said during that committal hearing was not reported but the outcome against the widow of Fred West would be heard on Valentine's Day. Rose West had been charged with two counts of rape and one count of assault. However, these charges were dropped. The men who were also accused of the crimes, Whiteley Purcell and William Smith, also saw the charges against them withdrawn. Instead, Rose West would be sent to trial for two further charges of rape, said to have been committed with her husband, and two counts of indecent assault. The victims' names were withheld for legal reasons. West spoke only a few words, dressed in a cardigan over a blouse. She replied that she understood the charges, nothing more. If she felt any emotion, her face did not give it away. She was told she was going to trial for ten counts of murder. The magistrate Peter Badge said, I am satisfied that sufficient evidence has been laid out before me to put the defendant before a jury. During the investigation and before the trial, there appeared to be a growing number of officials, either in law enforcement, solicitors or who worked for the local authority, that had plans to sell their story and what they knew about Fred and Rose West. 
large sums of money were being offered by publishers. There would no doubt be plenty of books or television shows produced on the subject of what happened at 25 Cromwell Street, but few of those books written by the individuals who orbited the case would ever see the light of day. They had hoped they could say goodbye to their troubles with such a large amount of money from a publishing deal, but the only thing they would say goodbye to was a successful career when their supervisors found out. Some of those individuals had been working for the police for decades and had even been honoured with an MBE. To name a few, DC Hazel Savage was removed from the case following claims that she allegedly tried to sell her story to a literary agent. She was transferred to other duties. Howard Ogden, Fred West's solicitor, faced a disciplinary tribunal hearing. It was alleged he had coerced Fred West into signing a waiver that voided his right to confidentiality. It was also alleged he behaved in a way that compromised or impaired his professional reputation. This was something that Howard Ogden thoroughly denied and was insistent that West had entered into the agreement willingly. Ogden had represented West during a previous legal case in 1992, but two years later, after using the solicitor services for a short period, West had fired Ogden after he came to the conclusion that his solicitor had been trying to sell a book and film rights about his life. Howard Ogden was eventually suspended from his duties for a year for unbecoming conduct. In addition, he faced a financial penalty that would cover half the costs of the tribunal hearing. There was also the numerous individuals who would be appearing at Rose West's trial. Their reliability as witnesses would need to be assessed. So much money had changed hands for the inside scoop as to what happened at Cromwell Street. The defence was arguing these witnesses might embellish or flat-out lie about what had happened to make their stories more appealing to the press. Several further hearings occurred before Rose West was scheduled to face a jury, or two to be exact. Sitting at Winchester Crown Court, the judge, Mr Justice Mantell, ruled that he wanted West to face separate trials. The first would cover ten counts of murder, then a second would be scheduled to address the multiple counts of rape and indecent assault, so as to not conflate the evidence. However, as the cogs of the legal system geared towards the first trial, it was clear that it was impossible for a potential jury member to have not heard about the case to some degree, given its far-reaching publicity. As the judge decided what information jurors would hear, Mr Justice Mantell ultimately decided to allow evidence of sexual attacks into the first trial, in spite of protests from the defence. The charges Rose West faced of rape and indecent assault would lie on file. 
in a surreal turn of events. Judge Mr Justice Mantell compared the evidence to the French folk tale of Bluebeard, a man of considerable wealth who kills his wives one after the other. Surely if one had survived, the judge remarked to the court, we would want to know what occurred. Mr Justice Mantell felt the testimony from victims who had been subjected to sexual attacks but were alive to tell the tale should be heard. The trial of Rose West would take place at the start of October 1995. This is the end of episode two. You can hear more on the case of Fred and Rose West in four days. And please make sure to follow They Walk Among Us on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Sarah Pitling, and everyone who supports us through Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. On a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.